Hello, everyone. Welcome to day 41 of OT with DA. Welcome to Instagram Live. And welcome everybody that is viewing on YouTube. So glad you guys can join. I don't know where uh, you're at, but where I'm at, it is Friday evening, which means it's the beginning of the Sabbath. And I've had a great day today. I hope you've had an awesome day. I literally just came here from a baptism. And so I had the privilege of, of opening the Sabbath by witnessing a baptism of a young man. And it was beautiful. And we were singing songs and praying. It was great. And so now here we are, and it is uh, day 41. I can hardly believe it. We're in chapter 40. Now we're in the fours, both in days and in uh, our chapters. And this is a great chapter. I'm looking forward to this one. So let me just welcome everybody here. Hello, Marco. Happy Sabbath to you. Uh, somebody says, where do we see the bingo? I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Bingo? I, I No idea. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, you're going to have to print that out if you want to play the David Ashrick bingo. Hello, Jim. Hey, Deb. Hey, Dominic Jones, 141. Hello, H.J.P. Gayton. Deb Snyder. And let's see, Leslie. Cassandra. All right. Hello from Michigan, says Billy. Hi, DA and friends, says Kelly. All right. Welcome, everybody. Great to see you all. Hope you've had a wonderful day. I'm especially happy because my wife is back. As I mentioned a couple days ago, she went into the mountains uh, for a couple days of kind of snowshoeing and just being in the outdoors. She came back. So I'm happy to report that Violetta and I are reunited after two and a half very difficult, very trying days away, days apart. And uh, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned she makes, whenever she goes away, she typically makes like a giant... Uh, like triple or quadruple um, serving or dish of whatever, usually rice and beans. And uh, there's still rice and beans left. So she could have stayed another day if she would have wanted, but I missed her. I missed her. Um, all right. Welcome. So glad you're all here. Uh, happy Sabbath. I got some happy Sabbaths there. Better together. I totally agree. All right. We are in chapter 40, Balaam. And this is, a, this is a good story. I mean, it's kind of a funny story. In fact, I just want to say right at the outset, there's a lot of humor in this chapter, both in the, the biblical text, Numbers 22, 23, and 24, and then in the specific way that Ellen White tells the story in uh, chapter 40 of Patriarchs and Prophets. Here's what I do. When something's funny, I used to write funny like, 10 years ago, I would write funny in the margin, but now I just write LOL, right? I've kind of caught up with the times and I'm, I'm using that nomenclature of LOL. And I wrote, let me just count, I didn't count, one, counting all the times that I wrote LOL in the margin, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, wow, 13, 13 times I wrote LOL in the margin. There's a lot of really funny things going on in this chapter. And um, yeah, I, I, I think we're going to have a good time together. 
it's not that the story is not a, a real story and a story that has some very solemn and serious um, opportunities. I mean, opportunities for solemn and serious reflection. Yes, I'm not suggesting that that's not the case, but God can communicate even through exaggeration, even through hyperbole, and sometimes, yes, through humor. And this is one of those instances where there are quite a few things that happen in this story that are downright humorous, and very often they're humorous because they're so ridiculous, they're so absurd, they're so stupid, that all you can really do is just sort of laugh and say, for real? Like, is that a thing? Oh, I just realized I didn't start my recording over there. Give me two. Oh, no, I did start it. I did start it. Ha! I was having trouble seeing it, but it is started. All right. This is what happens when you have a one-man show here, right? There's only one person in this room, uh, unless I have somebody with me, one of our guests, and so I got to make sure that all the lights are just right, and the sound is right, and the levels are right. I got to do everything. And bear in mind that this whole video thing is something that I knew basically nothing about until the start of OT with DA. In DA with DA, I was just talking into my phone and my iPad. So uh, I'm actually kind of amazed, happy, thrilled that we've gotten now 41 days into this 75-day journey and we've not had any major mistakes. That's, that's all glory to God because I'm very much out of my area of expertise here. So, all right, welcome everybody. Hope you're having a great day, great Sabbath. It's been bitterly cold where I'm at, like zero degrees and negative five and even negative 10 degrees where I'm at, but I just checked the weather and by Monday, it's supposed to be 60 degrees. Now, now that's uh, Fahrenheit, not Celsius, but still, I mean, that's Colorado. We're gonna go from you know negative five or negative 10 to 60 degrees, and then I think it's supposed to be 62 or 64 on Monday. So it's wild, absolutely wild. I like that. I like the change, and I love the snow, and then I like it to be warm. And I like the snow, and then I like it to be warm. So wherever you're at, I hope you had a great day and a good week. And um, I will say just very briefly, I had a great conversation today on the phone with Mark from Types and Symbols. And we have some, I have an announcement that I will be making on Sunday or Monday. I'm not gonna say any more than that. So you'll wanna be tuned in. All right, let's pray. And then we're into this day 41 of our 75 day reading challenge through a large portion of the Old Testament. So glad that everybody's here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a story this is here in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, the story of Balaam. Father, in many ways, it's kind of one of the most iconic stories in the Bible, and yet it's, it's really a sad story, but then also simultaneously a humorous story. Father, I know for sure that there are lessons in this for me, because today when I was reading through it, first time and then the second time, your spirit was making application to my life. And Father, I'm quite sure that there's going to be applications made to everybody that's listening now and those that will listen tomorrow and in the weeks, months, and years to come. And so, Father, take this fascinating story and make application in the way that, that you can and that your spirit uniquely can to our lives. And this is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys ready? Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Connie says, hoodies and bingo. I, I, no comment. No comment. You're just going to have to wait and see for the announcement. All right, let's get started here. So as I've already mentioned, the, the chapter is based on the 
passage of scripture, passages of scripture found in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And this is an iconic story. It's a well-known story. It is the story of the king of the Moabites, Balak, who calls a former prophet of Yahweh, a prophet of God, to come and curse the children of Israel. And in the course of Numbers 22 to 24, Balaam, this once prophet of God, who actually is once again given the gift of prophecy, I'm going to show you that in the chapter today, he utters not one, not two, not three, but four different prophecies, four different prophecies in these three chapters. And it's remarkable, and it's funny, it's entertaining, so let's get into this. All right, so in paragraph one, the Israelites now, after the conquering of, let's just remind ourselves of what's happened. So back in chapter 38, Arab, the Canaanite king, was conquered. And then in 39, that was yesterday's chapter, uh, we had um, Sihon, the Amorite king, and then Og, the king of Bashan. And so now they're right up, right, they're at Canaan. The 40 years is behind them. It's in the rearview mirror. And the idea is, is that they're getting ready to go into the Canaan land, and the Moabites are nervous. In fact, they're more than nervous. It says uh, in paragraph one, the Moabites were filled with terror. The Bible says something very similar. Let me see this. Um, Numbers 22.3, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. And so there's this terror, right? There's this fear that, hey, what's happened to Egypt and what's happened to Og and what's happened to Sihon and what's happened to Arad, that's going to happen to us. And so there is this concern. And yet she says at the beginning of the second paragraph that the people of Moab had not been molested by Israel, right? They, they had seen that Israel had been um, actually quite tolerant of them, and, and there had been no uh, incursions into their territory, no hostility toward them at all. And yet they're nervous. And if you, if you just take a look there, they're not just nervous again, they're terrified. If you take a look at that second paragraph, this was our highlight from yesterday, that, that as the children of Israel won these seemingly impossible battles, right? Battles against all odds, battles that they had no business winning, it was clear that Yahweh was going before them, that the captain of the Lord's host, my word yesterday was captain, and she draws that same thread right into this chapter out of yesterday's chapter, which was titled The Conquest of Bashan. So just have a look sort of uh, halfway down the second paragraph. The hosts of Bashan had yielded before the mysterious power enshrouded in the cloudy pillar. That is to say, Yahweh, right? Like, like Jesus is at the pointy end of the spear and Israel is following. They're not leading militaristically, they're following. And then just a couple sentences later, it says the Moabites dared not risk an attack upon them and appeal to arms was hopeless in the face of the supernatural agencies that worked in their behalf. And so what basically occurs to Balak, he's heard about Egypt and Sihon and Og and all of this. He says, hey, normal warfare is not going to work here because the Israelites, shepherd, shepherds turned slaves turned, you know, weary, foot-worn travelers, they have no business beating you know, Og and his giant people in the land of Bashan, especially when the, the people of Bashan, they knew their own land much better than the Israelites did. So Balak is looking at this and going, 
yeah, there's something going on here. There's a supernatural power at work, and so it occurs to him. He has a kind of logic, a bad logic, but a kind of logic in which he says, oh, I'm going to have to get my own supernatural power to fight against their supernatural power. And so it occurs to him, and it says that they basically consulted together, and he got this idea. You know, he had a, he had a moment of inspiration, a eureka moment. And he says, I know what to do. I will call on Balaam. Now, Balaam apparently had some kind of a reputation as a prophet, as a diviner, as a seer. And the idea will be that he'll fight fire with fire. He'll fight gods with gods, right? Because again, we have to enter into the world that, that this is all taking place in. And the idea is that there wasn't one God. Monotheism, as we call it, is a fairly innovative idea. The idea that there's only, what, what, what do you mean there's only one God? Yeah, yeah, there's just one God, the Jews insisted. And the one God is the creator of heaven and earth, and all of the other gods are not actually gods. They're fallen angels and demons, or in some cases, just figments of people's imaginations. So monotheism has not taken root in these tribes and in this area. Of course not. And so the idea is, is that if one nation conquers another nation, or one tribe another tribe, or one clan another clan, then what's happened is, is their gods were stronger. And God is actually, to be fair, God, Yahweh, has played in to this basic narrative with, for example, the uh, plagues of Egypt, which we've already noted several times. This was a very specific and strategic overturning of many of the revered gods in Egypt. And so it does look like it's gods versus gods, right? It's the supernatural versus the supernatural. And so you can appreciate, given his worldview and given his fear that he's desperate. He's like, what am I going to do here? And so Balak gets this idea. I know someone who used to be a prophet of this God, the God of the Israelites, and now he's a diviner. And he's kind of like a mercenary for hire, right? Like a spiritual mercenary. And so he sends his emissaries over to Balaam to, and this is some of the language that's used here, uh, the power of sorcery, um, supernatural powers, his fame, his divinations, his enchantments, so the idea here is, is that we're going to bring in fire to fight fire. And, and Balak thinks, ah, oh, this is a really good idea. He probably is patting himself on the back. Smart, right? We're not going to enter into a physical altercation with these people. We'll curse them. Our God will overcome their God. That's the idea. And then it's quite interesting. The, the, the ambassadors arrive at Balaam's. It says it was a long journey, right? They set out on their long journey over the mountains. I'm on page 535, 439 of the original. And the people arrive and they say, hey, look, and this is quite interesting, look, a people has come from Egypt. So they tell the story. They tell the story of what has happened, but she makes the point that Balaam already knew this story. Most of the people in the area had already heard this story. I mean, you can't have such a radical, supernatural overturning of the most powerful nation in the world at that time and of their gods, and that's not going to spread like wildfire? Of course that's going to spread. And so they come and they say, hey, we need your help with these people that have come from Egypt. They tell the story, but Balaam already knew the story, right? And she makes that point. She said he, he knew the story. That's in the next paragraph. Uh, it says, he was not ignorant of God's work in behalf of Israel, and when the messengers announced their errand, he well knew, he knew already, he knew what was going on and uh, that Yahweh had come through in a really powerful way for the Israelites, uh, leading them out of Egypt. Also, probably these more recent victories over Og and Sihon, uh, these and Arad, or Arad, these might already have been known to him as well. 
Now, there's a word here, just as in yesterday's chapter, our word, remember that very important word, defiant or defiance, used three times and always at crucial junctures to sort of communicate the thrust of the chapter. We have a similar situation today where there's a word that occurs again three times. I think it's only three. I didn't count another one. And that word is professed. Write it down. Make a note of it. Professed. And it's right here in this, the first occurrence is in this paragraph, begins, Balaam was once a good man. I'm on the same page, 535. Balaam was once a good man and a prophet of God, but he had apostatized, right? He had left Yahweh. He had left God and had given himself up to covetousness. She uses several words in this chapter for this covetousness, avarice, greed, right? He was a lover of money. He had given himself up to covetousness, yet he still professed, underline it. Highlight that. That word is going to show up three times. I believe it's only three, and it functions in a very similar way to the way that defiant or defiance functioned in yesterday's chapter to give us a feel that this word is pivotally important for this chapter. And this word, professed, is pivotally important. Let's read the rest of that sentence. He still professed to be a servant of the Most High. So this is, this is crucial. In his heart, he's far away from God, right? But in his posture, in, his, in the way he presents, in the way he professes, he still lets on that he is a prophet of the Most High, that he's a prophet of Yahweh. Very important word. And then she goes on to say he was not ignorant of God's work on behalf of Israel. And uh, then she goes on. And when the messengers announced their errand, he well knew that it was his duty to refuse the rewards of Balak, because they're going to pay him what the Bible says is the diviner's fee, right? In verse 7 of Numbers 22. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hands. So they show up with money. Basically, they're going to pay him for his access to supernatural power, right? And she's saying he knew that this was a really bad idea. And then this great line, underline this as well, but he ventured to dally with temptation. Dally, what an interesting word, a, a, a fascinating word, a word that we don't use very often, right? We will normally say, uh, maybe in the, in the context of somebody taking their time, like, why are you dilly-dallying? Why are you dallying? Let's get moving. Let's get, why are you hesitating? Why are you dragging your feet? Right? He, he, cho he knew, but he chose to kind of have a look around, to sort of look at the temptation, think about the options, and, and run through the various scenarios in his mind to say, you know what, maybe there's something here. And, and this is one of the points she's going to make, that when we, any time we dally with temptation or we bounce around in our mind, hey, this, this might actually be all right, we are placing ourselves on vantage ground. Satan's vantage ground, I should say, not unlike what Eve did, right? Like Eve finds herself at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she's thinking, she's imagining, she's picturing scenarios, she's dallying with temptation, and then all of a sudden, what happens? The serpent there and says, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay, so, so the first lesson here right out of the gate is when we feel a temptation, when we feel the allurement, the entice, enticement, the, the, the seduction to start contemplating some course of action that is on one level like interesting to us, enticing to us, uh, attractive to us, like money, right? Or some other thing that would satisfy us. When we know it's a wrong course of action, we shouldn't dally with temptation. We should flee, right? The Apostle Paul says that flee youthful lusts, flee youthful lusts which war against the soul, right? 
Like, flee, get out of there, run away. Just imagine what would have happened if Eve, the moment that she hears the serpent's voice, right, has God indeed said, she just bolts in the opposite direction. Well, then he has no power. But when we linger, when we dally, when we drag our feet in the face of temptation, all of a sudden you start saying, well, you know, maybe there is something here. Maybe there is a little bit of an option. And so she makes that point. He dallied with temptation. She says again that Balaam knew that this curse that he would give could not harm Israel. And uh, this is the first LOL, the first of like 12 or 13 LOLs. He says to the ambassadors that have come on behalf of Balak, hey, let me pray about it. Let, let me pray. Let me just go pray about this. Well, this is a giant LOL moment, right? Like, really? Are you kidding? You know that this is all a farce. It's a joke. The, there's so much show going on here. And by the way, that's one of the major themes in this chapter, is that Balaam is going to go through the, the profession, through the show. There's, there's going to be this sort of, this... Um, play acting that he's really connected with Yahweh and he's actually, well, no, and I'll give you some other instances of that. But here's a, hey, just, just excuse me. I need to, to humble my heart before my God. I need to seek his will. Yeah, LOL. That, this, no, that's not what's going on here. If anything, he's going to talk himself into this temptation. And uh, that's basically what ends up happening. They flatter him. They say, you know, we've heard that when you bless somebody, they're blessed. And when you curse somebody, they're cursed. By the way, this sounds very much like the original Abrahamic covenant, doesn't it? Right? Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, that whoever, you know, blesses you will be blessed, and he that curses you, I will curse. Right? So it almost sounds like kind of a divine prerogative, a uniquely divine prerogative that Balaam is, you know, supposed to have, and he's flattered by this. He thinks, wow, my reputation. People think I'm something. People think I'm the big man on campus. People think I've got power. I've got resources. And so he's flattered. She actually uses the word fame, right, uh, in that uh, second paragraph there. She says his fame had reached the land of Moab, right? So he starts to believe his own hype. And uh, then he says, no, I can't do it. And so he, he reluctantly dismisses the messengers, but he doesn't tell them exactly the whole story. He just says, no, I can't do it. The word gets back to Balak, and Balak's like, oh, I know what he's doing here. He's so powerful. He's so famous that he's just, you know, playing hard to get. He, he wants a higher price. And so he sends more money, more resources, and more esteemed ambassadors. And uh, this is in Numbers twenty two eighteen. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of Yahweh, my God, to do less or more. This is a show. This is at least the second instance, and there are many of them. I didn't count them all up. There are these little showy moments where there's clearly this like purposeful desire to come off as a little more spiritual, a little more sincere, a little more amazing, a little more famous. And so he, you know, here exaggeratively says, oh, no, no, no. Even if there was a whole house full of gold and silver, I wouldn't go, making him to come off like a man of integrity and sincerity, when, of course, the opposite is true. Now I'm on page 536, 440, and she has a whole paragraph that I'm, I'm not going to read, but the paragraph that begins, Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness, that whole paragraph is on the application to us of not dallying with sin, right? Delaying with sin, hesitating with temptation, and she does an excellent job 
of saying that, that whenever we hesitate rather than fleeing from sin or fleeing from temptation, that Satan is there to press the temptation upon us and to make it seem even more enticing, seductive, and attractive. So I thought that was a really great, um, it's kind of a long chapter, so I'm just hustling through, but that was a really great paragraph. Okay, so then now we come to page 537, 440, and the paragraph begins, a second time Balaam was tested. Now, I didn't mention this yesterday, but I probably should have, and I'm just going to quickly mention it now. At the end of yesterday's chapter on page 530-531, 437 of the original, Ellen White makes this fascinating point, and I'm just going to read it here. She says, in their contest with Og and Sihon, the people were brought to the same test beneath which their fathers had so notably failed, but the trial was now far more severe than when God had commanded Israel to go forward at the first. And then a couple sentences later, if they fail to endure the trial, God brings them God brings them again to the same point, and the second time the trial will come closer. Okay, this is great, because this is another example of her pulling a thread from one chapter into the next, right? We, we've already seen uh, one example of that with the, the fact that it was Yahweh that was leading Israel, and then she leads with that here in this chapter, that it was Yahweh that had been leading Israel, and Balak hears word of this, and then here's another thread that she pulls into this chapter. Look at, look at it again, page 537. The second a second time Balaam was tested, but this time the volume of the temptation, the, the, the difficulty of the test is turned up. Okay, this happens with us, right? The, the tempter comes and the first time maybe we pass the test or maybe we fail it. Either way, when we come back around to that temptation, it's entirely possible, perhaps even likely, that it'll be harder. And we've seen this, for example, in Jacob's wrestling with the angel there in Genesis chapter 32. What is your name? God brought him back around to the very question that had haunted him for 20 years that his father had asked him, what is your name? Are you really Esau? And he had deceived his father, been separated from his mother. And so when he came back around, that was the one question he didn't want to hear. And that trial was much more difficult for Jacob. He had to wrestle the whole night. Symbolically, he didn't want to face this truth that his life was largely a product of that one moment, that one instant of succumbing to temptation. And so when we, when we come around the second time, very often it's harder for us. And so now it's going to be harder for Balaam. He reluctantly, even dallying with temptation, he reluctantly sent them away. Now they come back, more princes, more prestige, more money. And guess what? He's going to fail. He fails the test here. So I wrote here, compare the same test and the same point she, those are the phrases she uses on pages 530 and 531. So a second time Balaam was tested. Now look at what happens right after this. In response to the solicitations of the ambassadors, he professed second usage. Again, that, that is a crucially important word functioning in very a very similar way to the way that the word defiant functured, functioned in our last chapter. He professed great conscientiousness, right? And integrity. This is my point about a show not unlike um, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, right? There was a lot of sort of ostentatious presentation and, and there were all of the accoutrements of religion and the words of religion and the long flowery prayers and the show of religion, but the heart was not subdued and softened. This is why Jesus said, on the outside, you're like you know these whitewashed walls, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. That's what's going on here. So here again is our word, professed. 
In response to the solicitations of the ambassadors, he professed great conscientiousness and integrity, assuring them that no amount of gold and silver could induce him to go contrary to the will of God. But he really longed to comply with the king's request, and although the will of God had been definitely made known to him, he urged the messengers to wait that he might further inquire of God. Here's the showiness again. It's all theater. It's all farcical. It's not real. It's a joke that he's playing on himself. And never forget, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The easiest person to fool is yourself, right? Ellen White uses this phrase. In fact, she uses it in this chapter. She, uh, just on the page before this, we flatter ourselves. Many flatter themselves. They deceive themselves. And so he, he feels flattered, you know? He's, he's regarded, he's wanted, he's desired. And we all want to be known and desired and regarded and held in esteem. And so he's kind of puffing him up a little bit. And so he puts on his little show, like the peacock. He puts up his feathers, makes his little show, but it's artificial, right? Like this is entirely artificial. He, uh, then she, then, okay, here's my second LOL. The next uh, paragraph begins, there are thousands at the present who are pursuing a similar course. This is a great LOL moment, but it's also so well-written and insightful. Listen, there are thousands at the present day who are pursuing a similar course they would have no difficulty in understanding their duty if it were in harmony with their inclinations. That's funny. That's funny. It's true and it's funny. Like people that are like, oh, well, I've just got to figure out if this is the right thing. She's saying if the thing that was the right thing was also the thing they wanted to do, they would immediately discern, oh, this is my duty. This is my responsibility. This is my obligation in this situation. But when the obligation, the duty, and the responsibility go contrary to the unregenerate heart, then we, well, you know, let me, great point she makes here. And by the way, I, I've said this many times in the past, and it bears repeating, that the Christian faith, sort of panning out here and just making an observation about the nature of the Christian faith, the Christian faith is not one in which you're supposed to be continually striving, and it's supposed to be hard and difficult. No, because what God does is, is God transforms the heart and he transforms the tastes. He literally, we are born again. We are renewed in the spirit of our mind so that in the Christian faith, this is amazing, you get to do whatever you want to do and what you want to do is the will of God. I mean, think about that. That's what God is driving at. That's what I mean when I say that your holiness and your happiness are not two things, they're one thing. In the Christian faith, when it's when it's practiced correctly and you're infilled with the Spirit and rooted in God's Word and connected with Him and His community, the thing you want to do is the thing God wants you to do, and so the desire of your heart is a reflection of the desire of God's heart, right? This is what it says about Jesus in Psalm 40. He says, your law is, yea, I delight to do thy will, oh my God. Yes, your law is in my heart. Well, that's the new covenant promise. And sometimes we talk about the Christian faith like, oh, it's hard and it's a struggle and it's difficult and you're constantly waging this war. There is a sense, a Romans 7 sense, in which we have to push back against the, the natural inclinations of the human heart, the unregenerate human heart, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's true. We will have those moments of trying and of temptation and of difficulty. But very often in the Christian experience, you are thrilled to get to be a blessing and to minister to people and to help people and to grow closer to Jesus. There's so much joy, so much happiness, so much fulfillment. This is the Christian faith, that, that you're not always in a continual, uninterrupted state of struggle. No, God is changing your heart. He's changing your tastes. He's changing your interests. And when that happens, then 
our holiness and our happiness are not two things and never the twain shall meet. No, they're one thing. And so this is a great point she makes. She says, look, I'll read it again. There are thousands in the present day who are pursuing a similar course. They would have no difficulty in understanding their duty if it were in harmony with their inclinations. Well, what do we do here then? What do we do? I'll tell you what we do. We pray the prayer of the psalmist. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Make me hate the things that I love. In my unregenerate condition, the things I love make me hate those things. And the things that I, that I love, right, right, you, you, I'm, I'm getting this a little bit backward here, but you get the idea. The things that I used to love teach me to hate them. And the things I used to hate teach me to love them. And God does that. It's progressive. It's incremental. But God does that. And so that was a great LOL moment. Then one of the great lines in the whole chapter, in that same page, same paragraph, but God will not be trifled with. Underline that. Underline that. This has very much that Galatians 6 feel, right? That God is not mocked. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he reaps. And what she means here by God will not be trifled with is all of this show that, that Balaam is putting on here is, it's a joke. It's theater. And I'll just kind of flash forward to another great example of this. In each of the three prophecies where Balaam is supposed to be cursing Israel, what does he do? He says, build seven altars. Well, come on, seven altars? In the sanctuary, there was only one altar. It's just excess. It's, it's ridiculous. No, but it, it looks good. It sounds good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seven altars. And, uh, and then on every altar, we'll sacrifice a ram and a bull. And he doesn't do this once. No, 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 no. This is almost like that sort of, um, you know, the story that's going to come to us in the not too distant future. Well, I guess it will be in, in the, the next time that we're together with Elijah and all of the priests of Baal right on top of Mount Carmel. There's a big show and a big display and a big performance. And what does Elijah do? He just kneels down and prays. And in the sincerity of his heart, right, the sincere prayer, God hears that. But here with Balaam, it's all a show it's all a performance, and in the midst of this performative but ultimately unregenerate and hypocritical and greedy former prophet, she says, God will not be trifled with. Underline it and don't forget it. Don't forget it. God, we can fool one another with our tricks and our posturing and our performances. God is not fooled. God cannot be trifled with. Great line. Okay, Turning the page here. Um, so then I'm at the top of page 538. She says that the Moabites were a degraded and idolatrous people. Um, she, <laughs> then what happens is, is God says to Balaam, yeah, you can go if you want to go. You don't have to go. But just be clear on this. If you go to try to take the money, to try to get the diviner's fee, this grand reward that you've postured, you know, as a man of integrity that you wouldn't accept, just know this, that when you open your mouth, I'm going to speak. So he knows this going in. And the idea here is that God is trying to persuade him out of going. It's going to be a fool's errand, right? Don't go. But just know if you do go, uh, then when you open your mouth, it's going to be my words, not your words. Okay? And I should say, I, I didn't mention this already, I'm super duper excited about my word today. <clears throat> I'm even more excited about my word today than I was yesterday. Okay, so prepare yourself for that. And I'll try not to give too many hints. Um, here's another LOL moment. 
I probably won't mention all these because there's so many of them. Top of page 538. Hence, he was not to be permitted to speak as he chose, but he must deliver the message which God should give to him. The word which I speak to you, that you will do was a divine command. This is funny. Like, you just have to kind of admit, this is a funny way. It's a humorous way that God is addressing this situation, right? Like, God's like, okay, you can go if you want, but just so you're clear, when you open your mouth to ostensibly curse Israel, what's going to come out is not going to be your words. It's going to be my words. After all, you've been hired under the pretense that you're a prophet, that you're a seer, that you're a diviner. So I am going to use you as a prophetic vessel. That's funny. It's very humorous. And uh, so Balaam knows the deal going in, and he goes, anyway. Okay, then we have one of the great stories, one of the great stories. And um, this is the, the story of the, the prophet Balaam going <laughs> to, to you know, the border of Moab where Israel is encamped, and he's riding on his donkey, apparently like his regular donkey that he's had a long time, <laughs> because a conversation is going to break out. Okay, if you didn't already detect that there were certain humorous elements in this story, you'd have to get it here, right? Like, it's impossible. So they're going on the way. You know the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. And all of a sudden, the, the donkey is just sort of going down the trail, and then the donkey just hangs a, a you know sharp turn into a field, and, you know, Balaam's totally mystified by this behavior, and so he gets angry, and he you know, he swatched the donkey. I mean, Ellen White says that he beat the donkey unmercifully and forced it back onto the trail to walk forward. And then the, the donkey takes this like um, another sharp turn and actually smashes the foot against like a tight, you know, wall. And the, the Balaam's thinking, what has gotten into this beast? You know, normally she's so accommodating and she's so easy and it's an uneventful ride. Now my foot is aching, and so again, um, he whacks this animal again. She says more cruelly than before. Finally, the donkey is totally terrified because the donkey is seeing things that Balaam isn't seeing, and the donkey, in total exasperation and resignation, just lays down, right? Just, isn't that what it says here? Uh, let's see, Balaam's rage, let's see. The poor beast, trembling with terror, made a full stop and fell to the earth under its rider, right? If you've maybe seen an animal do this. When an animal gets confused, sometimes they just give up and it just, it just doesn't know what to do. Balaam's rage was unbounded and with his staff, he struck the animal more cruelly than before. And God now opened its mouth. Now, Ellen White quotes here, or excuse me, yeah, she quotes here 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. And I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to remind you of what it says in the old King James, the 1611 Elizabethan English King James, right? That sort of Shakespearean English. Here we go. It says, God now opened its mouth, and by a dumb donkey, speaking with a man's voice, he restrained the madness of the prophet, quoting 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. In the King James, it says, a dumb ass speaking with a man's voice. Now, I'm... Yeah, I'm being a little cheeky here, but that is what the King James says, a dumb ass. Now, forgive me for saying this, but I cannot pass this opportunity up. There is a dumb ass in this story, okay? But it's not the donkey, right? There's somebody here that is not reading the situation, not following the, the cues and the clues. And so I, I couldn't resist the temptation to remind ourselves that the old word the Elizabethan English word, and we sometimes even use it today. We'll talk about a jackass or an ass as a donkey. Uh, 
I, I have to laugh at that, right? It's just a cute little play on English. Yeah, there is a dumb ass in this story, but it's not the donkey. Okay, so then, uh, next paragraph, 539. Furious at being thus hindered in his journey, Balaam answered the beast as he would have addressed an intelligent being, right? Because the donkey now talks. So he's not the dumb one. <laughs> what have I done to you? It said, you've struck me now three times. I mean, this is funny. It's unavoidably funny. And uh, then Balaam just like starts talking to the donkey. Well, he says, yeah, the reason I did this is, you know, you've abused me. Uh, and furious at thus being uh, hindered in his journey, Balaam answered the beast as he would have an intelligent being because you have abused me. I wish there was a sword here in my hand and I would kill you. This is funny. Here a professed magician, quote unquote, on his way to pronounce a curse upon a whole you know, group of people with the intent to paralyze their strength, right? He didn't even have the power, she says, to slay the animal on which he rode. This is funny. It's designed to show you the theater of it all, the, the, the posturing of it all. It's a giant joke. And here again, God does something that's humorous. It's designed to show that the donkey, the dumb animal, recognizes God's providence sees that God is trying to prevent him from going, but Balaam doesn't see it. That's the story. That the donkey is smarter than the prophet. The seer cannot see what the dumb animal can see. Bam. Right? And uh, then eventually um, the angel of the Lord appears and he sees the angel of the Lord and he's terrified. And uh, then he says, hey, look, um, why have you struck your donkey these three times? To me, it's very funny that the first thing that God says to the prophet is, hey, why are you hitting your donkey? Not like, what are you doing? Why did you put on that big show in front of the ambassadors? Why are you going to curse Israel when you know that you can't curse what I have blessed? Like, it seems to me there would have been a lot of things more, a lot of things more important than asking him, hey, why are you hitting your donkey? But it does show, and Ellen White has a whole, two whole paragraphs on this, that God regards the life of animals, that animals are valuable to God. They're beautiful. I mean, anybody that has spent much time around animals, you can see they're intelligent. They understand, they discern, they can, I'll tell you, on my Instagram account, I, I save some of my favorite videos, and this is just one of my very favorite videos, and it's way funnier if you see it, but I'm gonna try to describe it to you, and, and hopefully you can get the humor. Okay, so... You might already know that, that crows and ravens and jays, they're members of a bird family called the corvids, corvidae. And they're very intelligent, like extremely intelligent. And crows and ravens can use tools, like they'll get little sticks to, to fetch things out of a jar or to pluck a grub out of a, out of a log. They're extremely intelligent. They also have this real ability to understand shapes. And I don't know if you've ever seen this little video, but it's like one of those child's toys that you might have had when you were young, where there's like a round block and you put the round block through the round hole and there's a square block and you put the square block through the square hole and there's a star-shaped block, uh, uh, a star-shaped block. I shouldn't, yeah. You put the star-shaped block through the star-shaped hole. Have you seen these? Or triangular. And there's this video, it's, it's on Instagram, you can find it, of this raven picking up the correct blocks and then putting them into the correct hole. I mean, quick too. It's not, it doesn't take long at all. Picks up the star, puts it in the star. Picks up the triangle, puts it in the triangle. Picks up the square, puts it in the square. Picks up the circle, puts it in the circle. And it just shows this, and you're going, wow, this is really cool. And then it immediately cuts away. 
I shouldn't laugh about this, but I can't resist. It immediately cuts away to a, a person, and I think most of us have seen this in our life at some point. Some of us might have even done this, and it cuts away to a, a, a human being on a plane with a piece of luggage, right, that's like the size of the state of Massachusetts, trying to shove it in the overhead bin, and it is obvious to anybody with eyes that that cannot go in there. <laughs> that's not going in there, no matter how strong you are, that doesn't fit. And so it's just so funny, like the, the crows, like star to star, circle to circle, square to square, triangle to triangle, cuts immediately away to some person trying to shove this like giant suitcase in, right? So yeah, animals are smart. They can think, they can feel, they can reason, they're intelligent. And probably most important of all, animals can feel pain. And if that's all we knew was that they were capable of experiencing pain, that should seriously inform and modify how we treat animals, right? They're capable of experiencing pain. Never mind the fact that they're, they're loving and they're kind and they're fun and they're creative and they're, they're, you know, they have all of the wonderful attributes that animals do. They can also feel pain. And so I love the fact that the first thing the angel of the Lord says is, hey, why are you hitting your animal? Why are you striking this donkey? The donkey sees what you don't see. The donkey discerns what you don't discern, right? Like there is an analog here and I wasn't even planning on saying it, but it just comes to me. There is an analog between the crow that can get all the things in the right places and the guy can't get it. He, the guy can't see what everybody else on the plane can see and what the crow could see. And here the donkey can see what the prophet, the seer, that was one of the old words for prophets, seers, what the seer can't see, the donkey can see. And the first thing God says to him is, hey, why are you, why are you hitting your donkey? The donkey's not at fault here right? The donkey's smarter than you, is basically what he's saying. And then she uses this word blinded. She says he was blinded, he was blinded, he was blinded by greed, he was blinded by his uh, own uh, dallying with temptation, he was blinded by avarice, he was blinded by the uh, flattering that had, uh, the flattery that had been given to him. And I'm not going to read those paragraphs, but they're great. They're great. She does have this one great line on page 540, 443 of the original. I'll read just one line from this paragraph. A disposition to cause pain, whether to our fellow men or to a brute creature, is satanic. Amen and amen. And I appreciate the fact that she takes this opportunity to highlight animal welfare. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in OT with DA, but I've told this part of my story many times before. The reason that I became a follower of Jesus and the reason that I became a Seventh-day Adventist is that I was a vegan. I was a vegan. And I was... a Idea, ideological and idealist teenager who was very passionate, not primarily about health, but about animal rights. I was, I was like, hey, why are we killing things that we don't need to kill and factory farming and abuse and fur coats and all of this stuff? It really rubbed me in all the wrong ways in my late teens and early 20s. It still does rub me in all the wrong ways, right? And I was, uh, you know, really committed to like, Causes like PETA and, and Earth First and, you know, animal welfare organizations. And so when I met these people that were Christians and vegan, Christians and, and sensible about the world around them, I was like, hey, I can get behind this. And so this was an entering wedge for me, very much so. And I do believe that Christians should be mindful, very mindful of how it is that we treat the animal world and the animal kingdom. By the way, if you want to read a great book on this, from a biblical perspective, read the book Domain. 
domain. And I don't remember who the author is. You can Google it um, if you just type in book domain animal. Really interesting book. Um, okay. Uh, by the way, by the way, I, I'll just say one more thing about this. I've mentioned on our OT with DA program a couple times, um, Richard Davidson. When Sylvia was with us, we talked quite a little bit about Richard Davidson because he is her senior professor. He wrote the book, Flame of Yahweh, you might remember. Richard Davidson's daughter, Rahel, has, excuse me, done her PhD research and finished it, I believe now, and either has written a book or is writing a book on the treatment of animals and how God makes covenants and keeps his promises, not just to human beings, but to the earth, including to animals. In fact, I'll just say one last word about this. I love, love, love the fact that in this paragraph here on 540, 443 of the original, she quotes Romans 8. She was so theologically aware and so biblically conversant. She quotes, this is how the, the paragraph begins, it is because of man's sin that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together. Fantastic. That's exactly the point that Paul is driving at in Romans 8, is that the earth, including the animal kingdom, is suffering under the weight of man's rebellion and sin against God. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, if you haven't yet read the book, The Problem of Pain, which I highly recommend, my oldest son just finished reading it all probably a year ago, he has a whole chapter in there on animal pain, the pain of animals. And so I deeply appreciate the fact that Ellen White took two paragraphs here to highlight that the disposition to cause pain unnecessarily or even gleefully, she says, is satanic. Good for her. Um, so then we come to the next paragraph there, and um, uh, I thought this was quite good here. Uh, paragraph begins, when he beheld the messenger of God, jumped down a few sentences, the Lord suffered him to proceed on his journey, but he gave him to understand again that his words would be controlled by the divine power. And then a little bit later, how powerless Balaam was to utter a curse. So, so Balaam, God is basically saying, Balaam, you're going to be dumb. And by dumb here, I don't mean stupid. Here I mean dumb by that you will be unable to speak your own words. When my spirit comes upon you, you won't be speaking. I will be speaking through you. So here's what I wrote in terms of the interaction of the dumb prophet with the not dumb donkey, okay? And I'm using dumb here in the sense of being unable to speak. So here's what I wrote. The one who can speak, excuse me, the one who can't speak can, that's the donkey, and the one who can, can't. It's funny. God is doing a funny thing here. And he's saying, look, I can make the donkey speak, and I can also make you not be able to say your own words. All right, uh, turning the page now, 541. And uh, we come here to the top of page 541. Paragraph begins with great pomp, the king. Here's another LOL moment. With great pomp, the king with the chief dignitaries of his kingdom, escorted Balaam to the high places of Baal from which he could survey the Hebrew host. This is another, this is all show. And it's just, it's funny, funny, funny to me to think if they could have seen that this is the guy that, you know, just a day or two or three or however long the journey was before was like losing his mind and having an intelligent conversation with a donkey, they wouldn't be putting on this big show for this, you know, supposedly uh, <laughs> august magician and diviner I mean, Balaam knows he's a fraud. He's a fraud and he knows it, but he allows them to like go through this big, you know, what does she say? Um, 
with great pomp. You know, they make a big show of it because he's their secret weapon, right? Like Balaam is the secret weapon. God's against God. Supernatural power against supernatural power. Here they're reeling out their secret weapon, the secret weapon that's having an intelligent conversation with a donkey a few days before and like losing his mind and saying, nah, if I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. <laughs> it's, it's so funny to me. And then he puts on his, you know, suit and tie or whatever, and he goes, uh, all very, it's all a big show. Look at me, I'm something special. Come on. Um, and then Ellen White does this thing that she sometimes does, this sort of literary device where she says, behold the prophet as he stands upon the lofty height, looking down over the encampment of God's chosen people. And then she does this, how little, how little, I like this. How little do the Israelites know of what is taking place so near them? How little do they know of the care of God extended over them day by, uh, by day and by night? How dull are the perceptions of God's people? How slow are they in every age to comprehend his great love and mercy? If they could discern the wonderful power of God constantly exerted in their behalf, would not their hearts be filled with gratitude for his love and with awe at the thought of his majesty and power? Amen. Amen. But I love that. How little, how little, how slow, how dull. And we've already seen this in the story of the fiery serpents that came out. The fiery serpents were always there. God didn't cause them to go into the camp. He removed his protection and the fiery serpents did what fiery serpents do. So, so here, Israel's down below going through their, you know, day-to-day -day activities, getting ready to take over Canaan. Totally clueless that the captain of the Lord's host, God, is up on this precipice fighting for them in a, in a fairly humorous way, in a funny way, and they're just oblivious. And that's how we are. That's her point. We have no idea. We don't know what we don't know, like Dr. Peckham says. You know, there's the things we know, and then there's the things that we don't know, and then there's the things that we don't even know that we don't know. And the Israelites are just blissfully unaware of how God is advocating for them and working on their behalf. Beautiful. And by the way, you should underline that whole section. And I actually crossed out they and just wrote we. So it sounds like this. If we could discern the wonderful power of God, constantly exerted in our behalf, would not our hearts be filled with gratitude for his love and with awe at the thought of his majesty and power? Amen. What a beautiful prayer this is. I'm just going to write that here, prayer. Okay, really beautiful. Okay, uh, let me pick up the speed here a little bit. Okay, then we come to the first instance of the seven altars. And we've already talked about how this is ridiculous. God doesn't need seven altars. He needs one altar. Even in his own sanctuary, there's one altar, right? Like there's the altar in the courtyard there. That's it. There's the altar. And um, you could say there's the altar of incense inside, but that's a different kind of altar. God doesn't need seven altars with seven bulls and seven rams. Again, it's all a part of the pomp. It's all a part of the show. It's all a part of the theater, and, and God is laughing about it. Now, his heart is breaking because it's in rebellion to him, but it's all humorous. It's a show. It's a joke. And one of the lessons of the chapter is you can't bridge the chasm of insincerity with show and performance. I'll say that again. You can't bridge the chasm of insincerity with a show and with a performance. Again, Pharisees. Jesus is like, what are these phylacteries on your head and, and these long prayers that you pray in the open-air markets? Like, what, what is all of this? It's a show. It's a performance. And there are a lot of religious people that have convinced themselves 
that the religious performance and the religious drama, the show of religion, will actually bridge the gap of the disconnection in their own hearts. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this great? Didn't we put on a big show for you? And Jesus will say, yeah, but the problem is, is that the show can't bridge the gap to a knowledge of me. I didn't know you. Bam. Okay, so then, um, you know this story, this part of the story. He opens his mouth and out come these beautiful poems, these prophetic poems, right? And it's, it's just great. It's just absolutely beautiful. I'll just read part of this. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number one-fourth of Israel? And, and so then he finishes his first prophecy and page 542, 447 of the original. Balaam confessed that he came with the purpose of cursing Israel, but the words he uttered were directly contrary to the sentiments of his heart. That's funny, right? Remember, he opened up his mouth and he, he went to say Cur curse. He's trying to say curse and he opens up his mouth and this beautiful, poetic, affirmational prophecy, right, comes out of his mouth, and he just can't believe it. Well, not only can he not believe it, um, neither can Balak. Balak's like, hey, that's not what I paid you for. That's not what I brought you here for. I didn't bring you here to bless. I brought you here to curse. She then has this great paragraph where she talks about the order in the camp and the, the well-ordered cleanliness of the camp and how it was intimidating, right? Like, Balaam was not prepared for this. He was kind of expecting a ragtag band of shepherds turned slaves, turned foot-worn travelers, and he sees this like everything's in order and all of the flags are there and the standards are there and, and there's, there's, you know, the sanctuary. It just all looks very orderly and it's intimidating. You can understand now why the Moabites, Balak and the others were like freaking out, saying, we can't compete with this. They've got this powerful God, and look at how ordered they are. Look at how clean they are. Look at how regimented they are. Not from a military standpoint, but just from an organizational standpoint. Okay, um, turning the page, 543. Really cool little thing that Ellen White does here where she, she uses the language of prophecy in this paragraph that begins, not only was Balaam shown the history of the Hebrew people. Listen to these phrases in this one paragraph. You ready? Here we go. He beheld, he saw, he saw, he beheld, he saw, gazing, he saw, he looked. Eight times in this paragraph, she uses the language of prophecy. Prophets were seers. There were people who saw things. And she even says that not only did he see Israel in their sort of short-term prophetic, uh, in their, in their short-term success, she says that he, he saw the whole plan of salvation. He saw the redeemed. He saw people coming out of the graves. Like God flashed into his prophetic eyes that not only is Israel going to be like momentarily victorious, but this whole plan is going to reign supreme and Yahweh will use these people triumphantly, cosmically. And so it's kind of cool. It's fascinating. It's funny. God gives him the gift of prophecy to see that he's on the losing side. And at the very moment that he saw this, he should have been like, uh, okay, repentance, humiliation, mercy. He should have taken off all of his fancy clothes, rent his garments, and walked down the hill, down the plateau, and gone and humbled himself before God, brought a sacrifice to the true sanctuary, and aligned himself and defected to Israel. But he was too proud. Yeah, there, was, there was still a show to be had. 
And um, so then next paragraph, Balak had confidently expected a curse that would fall like a withering blight upon Israel. At the words of the prophet, he passionately exclaimed, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and look, you have blessed them bountifully. Balaam, seeking to make a virtue of necessity, professed third time, third and final time, professed to have spoken from a conscientious regard for the will of God, the words that had been forced from his lips by the divine power. Right now he's pretending like these are actually his words, but they're not his words. They're God's words. And so here again, it's all about maintaining an appearance. It's about a performance. It's about a posture of being something special. So professed, professed, professed. Okay. Um, then they tried a second time and they build the seven altars and same thing happens. This beautiful prophecy comes out, right? And um, let's see, am I missing anything here? She says, top of page 545, that the language was of sublime and impassioned poetry. You can just imagine Balak's like pulling out his hair, like, I didn't bring you here to say all these nice and flowery and poetic things, right? I, I didn't bring you here to wax loquacious about the benefits of Israel and of their God. I brought you here to curse them, to harm them. Fire against fire. You're throwing water on my fire. Ha! And then he brings them up to the third mountain, Mount Peor. And even there's the little show here that happened a few times where he says, oh, now that we've built the altars and the seven bulls and the, you know, the seven cows, I need to go by myself with Yahweh. I need to spend some time. Come on. It's a show. So then you have the third time. Same thing happens. And uh, Balak is beside himself now. And then she has this great section where she says that one of the things that he had said was about the, the cedars, right? That Israel would be like a tree like aloes, and that it would be like this, the cedars of Lebanon. And then she has this great section here where she talks about the stately cedar. And I'll just say something really cool that occurred to me today. So I, you know, I have, I do have an addiction. I have a few addictions, actually. And uh, one of the addictions that I have, if you didn't know this about me, I'm just going to come out right now. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to be vulnerable. Okay, are you ready? This is a moment of real, this is authenticity here. I'm speaking from my heart. I have an addiction, and that addiction is I can't stop buying guitars. I have an addiction to guitars, and uh, I tell my wife all the time, this is the last one, and then I go see another guitar, and I play it, and I love the way it sounds, and I love the way it looks, and um, I buy it. And Violetta says, you said that the last guitar, that was going to be the last one. I said, baby, I'm sorry, but this one, let me just tell you about this guitar. And she just rolls her eyes in dismay. She's like, how many guitars do you need? And I say, just one more. That's always my answer, just one more. In fact, I'll tell you a cute little thing that I say to Violetta, it drives her crazy. I tell her that um, the appropriate number of guitars to own is N minus one. And you might be saying N minus one. Well, what is N? N is the number of guitars that would cause Violetta to leave me. <laughs> so whatever that number is, I just need one less than that. And uh, she says, well, then this is the one. If you buy one more, I'm out of here. So I bought one more and she didn't leave. So I'm just, I'm just trying to find you know, where that edge is. So I do have an addiction. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is that one of my guitars is made of cedar. 
The top of the guitar is cedar, and then the body of the guitar is actually koa. And koa is, uh, if you don't know, koa is an acacia that's actually native to Hawaii. Now, two of the most important woods in all of Israel is the acacia wood, which is what the ark was made out of, right? The acacia tree, and koa is, a, is an acacia. It's a native endemic to Hawaii. And then it's also cedar. So it's basically, I'm going to have to tell Violetta, Violetta, I can't get rid of this guitar. This is a holy guitar. This guitar is made out of cedar and acacia. I have to keep this one. Anyway, that just occurred to me today. And I think I'm saying all of this right now just to sort of soothe my own conscience about my addiction. So please don't judge me, okay? I need this to be a safe space. I need no judging. By the way, not all the guitars are expensive, right? Like, like the last guitar I just bought cost $200, right? But I think she's just tired of it just taking up space. <laughs> oh, she's going to, I hope she's not watching this. She's going to hate the fact I told you that. Um, okay. Um, then she makes this great point here about, um, you know, on the fourth prophecy, he utters this beautiful prophecy. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of war or the sons of tumult. I mean, this is a prophecy, one of the most beautiful prophecies in all of Scripture of the Messiah. And think about how incredible this is. This beautiful prophecy of the Messiah is coming out of the mouth of a performative, ridiculous, greedy, stupid, false prophet. And God's like, yeah, I can, I told you when you open your mouth, I was going to put my words in your mouth. And I can just imagine as, as Balaam's own ears are hearing what his mouth is saying, the whole time he knows he's speaking the truth, but his heart is so impenetrable that even though it's coming out of his own body, he can't humble himself and surrender. Beautiful. Um, then she has this really great point here. That I'm on the very last page here where he comes up with this new idea to entice them to depart from God. That's going to be the next chapter, a titled Apostasy at the Jordan. We'll get there tomorrow. She has this really cool and creative thing that she does in the last paragraph, second to the last paragraph, where she parallels Judas and Balaam. And there's some really good parallels there. That'd be a great sermon, actually, to parallel Judas, Judas Iscariot, and Balaam. And uh, then she makes this point about one, right? Last paragraph here. One cherished sin will little by little debase the character, bringing all of its nobler powers into subjection to the evil desire. The removal of one safeguard from the conscience, the indulgence of one evil habit, one neglect of the high claims of duty, breaks down the defenses of the soul and opens the way for Satan to come in and lead us astray. The only safe course is to let our prayers go forth daily from a sincere heart. Remember, performance can never bridge the chasm of an insincere heart. All of the religious prayers, all, all of that, if it's not coming from a sincere heart, it can't bridge the chasm. It can't close that, that gap. The only safe course is to let our, our prayers go forth daily from a sincere heart, as did David, uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I liked this chapter. I liked it a lot. I don't like Balaam's behavior. I don't like his actions. But full disclosure, they're entertaining. I mean, if, if somebody's going to rebel and be a fool and be ridiculous and absurd and stupid, 
well, then at least it should be entertaining. And I was thoroughly entertained by this chapter. Now, I want to do something a little... No, I guess I'm just going to do the normal thing. Okay, let's just go through this now, the rubric. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. What was the point of this chapter? I put to tell the story of a dumb plan, a dumb prophet, and a decidedly not dumb animal. <laughs> to tell the story of a dumb plan, right? Balak's plan was dumb. It was, it was stupid from the outset. And then a dumb prophet who was dumb on both levels. He was dumb in the stupid sense, and he was dumb in the I can't speak sense because he opened his mouth and God spoke through him. And then an animal that was not dumb. Not only could the animal talk, what the animal said was eminently reasonable. Hey, look, uh, you know I've been writing you, or you've rather, you've been writing me for some time, and this isn't my normal way of behaving, right? Something's obviously going on here. I'm seeing something you're not seeing, and I didn't even make this point, but, but Patriarchs and Prophets and the Bible makes the point that, that the animal actually saved Balaam's life. That if the animal hadn't stopped, that the sword of the angel of the Lord was going to end his life right then and there. And so the point is to tell the story of a dumb plan, a dumb prophet, and a decidedly not dumb animal. It's funny. Okay, uh, the person. I wrote here, God works in mysterious and sometimes hilarious ways. And that's what we see here. There's a lot of humorous elements in this story. And so God is working in mysterious ways, sometimes ways that we don't know, right? Remember that Israel's camp is spread out there down below, and they're totally unaware, blissfully oblivious to the way that God is working for them, right, to thwart the enemy. And it's just so beautiful. And I also wrote here, page 537, God will not be trifled with. We can't pretend with God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, that we are all naked before him, right? We are all naked before him. He knows us. I've mentioned before in OT with DA that we can come to others, our peers, our, our friends and family as we aren't, but we can only come to God as we are. And so God will not be deceived by performance. God will not be trifled with. Okay, the prayer. Um, Father, keep me from godless stupidity and folly. The Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, Balaam didn't exactly say there is no God, but he behaved as if Yahweh was less than he is. And God, keep me from this absurdity, this ridiculousness, this folly of godlessness. No way. I, I want to say with Peter, Lord, even when I'm confused, even when I don't know what the future holds, I say, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? There's no better show in town than Jesus. There's, there's, no, there's no better book in the universe than the Bible. Okay? It's better than Netflix, and Jesus is better than any political figure or celebrity or sports star and I don't, okay, you want to watch a movie, watch a movie. You want to watch some sports, watch some sports. But don't for a moment think that anything can take the place of God. God is wonderful. He's beautiful. He's amazing. He can be worshiped. He can be loved. He can be known. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Don't say there is no God and then don't live like there is no God. God is alive and he's real and he's amazing and he's awesome and he's coming soon, friends. Jesus is coming soon. I don't know if you've noticed, probably you have, 
the world is falling apart. And it's becoming so obvious that the world is falling apart that I actually was having a conversation with a good friend of mine, Josh, from Australia last night. And he said, David, how do you see all this wrapping up? You know, and I said, I think it is wrapping up. I, I don't think that the world wrapping up is something that's happening, you know, in some distant point in the future. I think we are seeing right now the collapse of morality, the collapse of objective reality, the collapse of basic human dignity. I mean, we are just seeing it's all going to bits, right? That's the world we live in. So this is no time to be abandoning your faith in God. The world might be. People say, oh, religion is down and church attendance is down and all of that is meaningless to me, right? Because a lot of the churches that people are not attending are churches that I'm actually happy they're not attending because a lot of those churches aren't teaching the word of God, right? They're just encumbered, so encumbered with centuries of tradition that when they're leaving religion, they're not leaving God, the one true God, because they've never even been exposed to God as he is in scripture. They're leaving a caricature of God. And there are a great many people, both ex-religionists and secularists, that have never even been exposed to what God actually is. And this is why the loud cry and the, 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 the uh, fourth angel of Revelation 18 that lightens the world with the glory of God, that is happening and will continue to happen on an increasing and global scale. And everybody will be exposed that, to the idea that a lot of religion has been farcical and not just farcical, but anti-Christian. So don't, you know, the, the, the winds and the tides of the world are moving. That should not move you. We are moored, we are anchored to God, the truth about God in scripture and, and in books like the conflict of the ages. I mean, where are you going to go? Come on now. My prayer is, Father, keep me from godless stupidity and folly. You don't want to run the race, the 26.2 mile marathon and get down to the last mile or two and then be like, you know, I think I'm done. You've already put in 24, 25 miles worth of work. Stay with the program. God's got this. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. Okay, I'm preaching now. I'm preaching. Um, the practice. How do we practice this chapter? Here's what I wrote. Well, for starters, be nice to animals. How's that? Be nice to animals. And then for me and for all of us to not prioritize money over personal integrity. Amen. And amen. God is not into the showy. He's into the sincere. That's what I want. Not the showy, not the performative, not the ostentatious. I want the sincere. And then finally, my promise was the beautiful prophecy that was uh, in Balaam's fourth prophecy there, the one that I just read. I'll read it again, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. Hallelujah. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Hallelujah. And batter the brow of Moab. Moab here is writ large for all of the enemies of Yahweh. And destroy all the sons of tumult. And the marginal reference on tumult is um, destroy all the sons of, I think it's like war or conflict. That's my promise. Jesus is coming. A scepter will rise out of Israel and a star will come out of Jacob. And not a 
star like a Tom Hanks or an Oprah Winfrey or a Denzel Washington, right? Not that kind of a star, a capital S star. In fact, in my Bible, it's actually capitalized. A star and a scepter. Friends, Jesus is the only celebrity that really matters. He's the one, and um, I hope you love that lesson. I want to know two things here. Number one, before I said so, did you, how many of you thought this was a funny story and a funny lesson? And then number two, tell me your word. Tell me your word. And I want to know if you thought it was funny. Oh, hey, Naomi, that's my word too. Naomi, that's my word, dumb. Yeah, that's my word, dumb. And I'll tell you why in just a little bit, but let me hear the rest of the words. Uh, let's see. Deb says, I did. You thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah, okay. June says, yep, me, hand up. Yep, Pura Vida, yep. Okay, there's a good word, duplicity. JJZ says, no, I didn't think it was funny. I wonder if you do now. Jim says, chosen. Jen says, loved it, great chapter. Totally agree, Jen. By the way, I had a great conversation with your husband today. Double-minded, great word. Dumb, says Frank, great word. Supernatural. Determined. Ooh, I like that, Cassandra. Astray. Frankie says, uphold. Hadassah is just laughing. Um, Allison says, self-opposition. Oh, I'd have to think about that. Profess. My word was, but. Lots of excuses made. Oh, yeah, good. Imposter. Not funny, somebody says. How discern, determined, one, yeah, I see what you did there, Liberty. that's at the very end, one this, one this, one this, funny for sure, unaware is the word, greedy, cherish, oh, I missed a word there, Hannah says, blessed, funny, I saw the foolishness of it, but not the humor, okay, well, maybe you see the humor now, well, foolishness, okay, that's fine, I'll stand by that, cedar, great word, I've always loved this story, says Viceland, well, a lot coming through here, I gotta catch up, um, reverse, reverse, safeguard, protector, ironic, good word, um, sightless, oh, very good, like blind, oh, that's a really smart word, sightless, because he was a seer, and then he couldn't see, blindness, poison, says Brent, oh, that's an interesting one, backfire, oh, good word, somebody says odd, but not funny at all, unchristian, reversal, Duty. I mean, how, really, the conversation with the donkey's not funny. That's the only story like that in Scripture. That's a funny. The man is having a conversation with his donkey, and the don. Okay, if you don't think it's funny, I guess di different different strokes for different folks. Indulgence. One. Helen says too serious to be funny. Yeah, I I don't think that. I've never bought into the idea that something can't be deeply serious and humorous. Jesus said several things that were humorous in the Sermon on the Mount. Like when he said, why do you behold the plank that is in your brother's eye or the, the, the splinter that's in your brother's eye and don't consider the beam that's in your own eye? That is purposefully exaggerative. It's, it's funny. The people in the crowd almost certainly chuckled when Jesus said that. Like it's, it's funny. And uh, when Jesus talked about the size of your phylacteries, it's, it's humorous. It's exaggerative humor. Um, oh yeah, Eve had a conversation with the serpent. Yeah, that's true. This is a little different. This guy's talking to his horse, to his donkey. Aspen Girl says it's hilarious. I agree. Camel through the eye of a needle. Yeah, that's another good one. Jesus often employed hyperbole or exaggeration, and it's funny. 
Brett Lane says, tragedy and comedy are a hair's breadth apart. I agree. Um, okay, here we go. Are you ready? Here's, here's my seven reasons. Seven reasons why my word was dumb. And if you don't get all these, you can see them in my Instagram post tomorrow. Number one, Balak's idea in the first place was dumb. It's a dumb idea, right? Like there's a certain logic to it. Like, hey, I'll get my supernatural power to work against your supernatural power. But he should have known Balaam was formerly a prophet of Yahweh. This is not going to work. It's a dumb plan, number one. Number two, Balaam's willingness to participate was dumb. God told him that it. he knew in his heart it wasn't going to work. And God told him that the words that were going to come out of his mouth weren't going to be his own. So it, he was dumb to go along with it. And God didn't want him to go along with it. Number three, Balaam's prayer to God was dumb. Like he said, hey, I need to go check with God if it's okay for me to curse his people. No, that's dumb. Number four, a normal donkey would be dumb, right? But this donkey is not dumb. So that's one of the reasons. Number five, the building of the altar, seven altars, three times. What, it didn't work the first time. You think it's gonna work the second time? You think it's gonna work the third time? I mean, come on. Right? What's, the, what's that old saying about the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and again and expecting different results? That's just dumb. And then number six, especially when the Hebrew sanctuary only had the one altar in the outer court. What do you need seven for? You're going to improve upon God's own pattern and design? It's dumb. Number six, um, that, yeah, that I put here, that Balaam tried the same thing three times. Number seven, Balaam was literally dumb because he was unable to speak his own words. And so my word was dumb. I think it really captures for me the essence of the chapter, both dumb as stupidity and then also dumb as an inability to speak. The donkey that should have been dumb could speak, and the prophet that should have been speaking the words of Yahweh wanted to speak his own words, but then God prevented him from doing it. It's good. It's clever. It's creative. It's awesome. And, and the big takeaway, as I said for me in this chapter, is God keep me from this kind of stupidity, right? Like, I don't want to so sacrifice personal integrity and sincerity and truth on the altar of performance and you know religious appearance that I convince myself that I'm something that I'm not. I mean, no way. I don't want to fool myself. And so I just want to say no to all of this godless stupidity and absurdity and ridiculousness. And I hope that you, along with me, want to say the same thing. The, the world is losing its collective mind. Um, increasingly, friends, we are going to have to be utterly moored and anchored to something solid, truly solid, capital S solid, something transcendent. And no politician is going to get you out of this mess. No lifestyle coach is going to get you out of this mess. Now we need a savior. And fortunately, that's exactly what we have in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. We know that, again, that's not the big story. The big story is not the love that we have for you. Sincere though it be, Father, the story is the love that you have for us. And help us to see in this story, Father, that Israel, there's almost nothing about Israel in this story, right? It's just all about Balak and Balaam, and Israel's just blissfully unaware, just down there doing their thing, and here you are working and ministering and laboring on their behalf. Father, so too for us. You are working on our behalf. You are laboring on our behalf. You are doing things that we don't know, and not just things that we don't know, but things that we don't even know that we don't know. Father, you are layers ahead of us, and we want to thank you and praise you. You're so good. You're so awesome. You're so beautiful. You're so clever. You're so kind. You're so inviting. 
Father, we receive that invitation and we cling to the promise, the great promise, that a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Father, soon and very soon is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.